Well, good afternoon. Uh, I welcome you to our webinar today on considerations in the management of metabolic acidosis in chronic kidney disease. My name is Dr. James Matera. I'm the Senior Vice President for Medical Affairs and Chief Medical Officer at Central State Medical Center in Freehold, New Jersey. So this activity is approved for one CME, CNE, and AAPA credit. Uh, if you have a question for us today, please type it in the box, which is located in the lower left portion of your screen under the headshot. All questions and answers will be answered during a live Q&A at the conclusion of this presentation. I will tell you that this is provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, LLC, which is an HMP company and supported by an educational grant from Trasita. So today I'd like to go over some of these objectives with you when we talk about metabolic acidosis. Um, I've been a nephrologist now for about 28 years and I've always been fascinated by metabolic acidosis because as we all know and are taught, it's really, uh, you don't treat metabolic acidosis per se, you treat the underlying cause. And sometimes that makes a lot of sense, but treating the acidosis when we know the underlying cause has never been very uh, satisfying in our treatments. And there is a lot of evidence now regarding chronic kidney disease and metabolic acidosis, which I'll go into. So my goals for today is I'd like to outline the implications of metabolic acidosis as it pertains to chronic kidney disease. I'd also then like to discuss the benefits and risks of various treatment approaches for metabolic acidosis, including the effects of alkali therapy, which has been our mainstay of therapy for years and years. I then want to summarize the efficacy and safety data of a novel sodium-free and non-absorbable gastrointestinal hydrochloric acid binder and uh, talk a little bit about how that may change how we approach this. So as far as an introduction, uh, many people are afraid of acid-based disorders, and that's okay. I was too. But acid-based disorders are very common in patients with chronic kidney disease, and it actually may contribute to some of the sequelae that we see in these patients. We know that there's evidence out there that suggests that treating chronic metabolic acidosis, especially in our CKD population, and, um, and the mainstay of therapy up till now has been by alkalinizing the urine with sodium bicarbonate. It's important to understand the prevalence of such disorders like metabolic acidosis and chronic kidney disease and how it relates to their outcomes. We all know that chronic kidney disease in general is a very costly disease. It's a very detrimental disease on patients and their families because if it progresses to end-stage renal disease, it's a huge implication in lifestyle change for these patients. So how do we get metabolic acidosis? What's the etiology? So we all know that the kidney has the principal role in maintaining acid-base balance. And without getting into too much physiology, uh, a decrease in the renal ammonium excretion and a positive acid balance leads to a reduction in the serum bicarbonate concentration. And we see that as chronic kidney disease progresses through its stages. This decrease in the sodium bicarbonate concentration is usually absent until we see fairly advanced chronic kidney disease in what we would call stage four, where the glomerular filtration rate decreases to under 20 to 25 milliliters per minute per meter squared. Although it can develop at lesser degrees of decreased kidney function, so our stage three patients may also be seeing the effects of this. A non-anion gap metabolic acidosis or a high anion gap acidosis or, or both can be found at these stages of chronic kidney disease. Usually we use high anion gap acidosis to define more critical illness, 
such as sepsis or things that add extra anions into the system. And that's not the topic of our conversation today. When an acidosis is developed, it can be then associated with multiple somatic issues in the chronic kidney disease patient, including muscle wasting, which is a very big part of that, uh, bone disease, hypoalbuminemia, chronic inflammation, even progression of chronic kidney disease, and thus with that, increased mortality. So when we administer base, we may actually start to alleviate or ameliorate some of these symptoms, including decreasing muscle wasting, improving metabolic bone disease, and slowing the progression of chronic kidney disease. So addition of base to a patient's regimen has been suggested when the serum bicarbonate concentration falls below 22 milliequivalents per liter. And I agree with that. I think that's a good time to be uh, looking at this uh, potential adverse effect. There is evidence that increments in serum bicarbonate concentration over 24 milliequivalents, however, that may be associated with worsening of cardiovascular disease and adds a great complexity to our decisions. So we have to always temper our decisions with our patients' um, presentation and outcomes and expectations. So this is a slide that shows us uh, the difference between ammonia and titratable acid when we look at days of acid loading. So how do we excrete acid normally? So the major adaptive kidney response to an acid load is to increase urinary uh, ammonium excretion. It is produced primarily in the proximal tubule cells uh, from systemically derived glutamine. The proximal cell of the kidney then metabolizes to glutamate, then alpha-ketoglutarate, which then produces two NH4 uh, cations and two bicarbonate ions, and the latter bicarbonate are subsequently delivered into the systemic circulation. Some of us remember that you have to generate and then maintain an acidosis, and this is how it's done. So the NH4 then must be excreted from the body, otherwise it gets metabolized to the liver, uh, to urea, and that would then consume the two bicarbonate ions you do. So what happens is you don't excrete the NH4 as well, and you're not producing and you're eating up some more of the bicarb. So how about the pathogenesis? So acid loading with ammonium chloride over four days actually will increase your ammonium, uh, urinary ammonium excretion in a healthy individual, and that helps maintain your serum carbon dioxide, which is actually a, a, another name for the serum bicarbonate uh, levels in the normal range. When you have chronic kidney disease, however, ammonium excretion fails to increase, and this results in metabolic acidosis. And then as your kidney and function deteriorates and you start to progress along tubulointerstitial damage, the compensatory response to this is insufficient. So you go into a positive acid balance and metabolic acidosis. And that's outlined in the graphs so they see here where we have healthy individuals and chronic kidney disease individuals. And you can see the difference in the serum bicarbonate or total CO2 on the top and the difference in the ammonium acid excretion that we see after an acid load if you look at the chronic kidney disease in the lower panel, it's almost uh, non-existent. So how do you diagnose this? It's usually diagnosed in patients with chronic kidney disease when the bicarbonate concentration, or I'm sorry, the total CO2 concentration, which again is a surrogate assessment of the bicarbonate concentration, is consistently below 22 milliequivalents per liter. Low serum uh, total CO2 concentration is also seen in other acid-based disorders like respiratory alkalosis, and distinguishing this particular acid-base disorder from metabolic acidosis 
requires an arterial blood gas to measure pH and PCO2. The anion gap is also important, as we stated above, and we know that higher levels of the anion gap are associated with increased risk of all-cause mortality in these patients after adjusting for demographics like age, gender, race, ethnicity, and even for the GFR. So what, it's, uh, what about risk factors for our patients? We know that not all of our patients will get this, but there are certain key factors and risk factors we look at. Certainly our reduced uh, glomerular filtration rate we've already spoken about. Patients, interestingly enough, who have hyperkalemia, which we may see in a type 4 renal tubular acidosis, and I know many of you just got chills because renal tubular acidosis often scares, uh, and myself included, so I won't spend any more time on that, uh, reduced urinary acid excretion would cause a risk factor. People who have albuminuria or proteinuria, and I'll show you an interesting study a little later, smoking, chronic anemia, actually patients with a higher serum albumin concentration, possibly even something like a paraprotein, uh, paraproteinemia might be uh, evident, non-use of a diuretic, and even our mainstay of therapy in our chronic kidney disease, ACE inhibitors and ARB use, can be a risk factor for the development of acidosis. So what happens in chronic kidney disease when you develop acidosis? Okay, you'll look at the, uh, the chart on the right as I go through a little bit of the, of the, um, of the uh, evidence here. And evidence supports the notion that kidney adaptations that facilitate acid excretion, trying to maintain a normal acid base balance, can themselves cause kidney injury. So endothelin-1, or ET-1, is a very potent systemic and intrarenal vasoconstrictor, and this induces oxidative stress and the extracellular matrix accumulation in the kidney, basically fibrosis. So these are things that can happen that we never really thought about before just from acidosis or acidemia. Angiotensin II, again, well-known in our kidney circles and in your circles as well, is a potent vasoconstrictor promoting tubular interstitial fibrosis. So if you look at this, just the development of acidosis can play a role in fibrosis, which leads to progressive chronic kidney disease. That's a big factor. If you, can if you can lessen that effect, that may then go on to lessen that interstitial fibrosis that we see. So we're going to talk about some of the uh, various things that acidosis affects. We'll start with the musculoskeletal system, where we do know that treatment with oral sodium bicarbonate, again, our mainstay of alkaline therapy, does ameliorate impaired growth in children who have renal tubular acidosis. And if you remember back to some things like Fanconi syndrome, um, you can uh, correlate with that. When we look at adults, however, who have chronic kidney disease, when you treat their metabolic acidosis for three months, you mildly attenuate, attenuate increases in their parathyroid hormone levels. And for those of you who have heard me speak on other topics in chronic kidney disease, uh, that's a, also a very big role in a cardiovascular risk factor in our patients. And we need to get a little better at controlling their bone and mineral metabolism by uh, dealing with parathyroid hormone levels and phosphorus. In a crossover study done by Kendrick back in 2018, the treatment of metabolic acidosis with sodium bicarbonate had no effect on levels of parathyroid hormone or bone turnovers, but we started to see increases of serum phosphate and FGF23 levels. Now, I'm not going to go into those, but again, those are risk factors in chronic kidney disease pointing towards cardiovascular risk. So when we see increases in phosphate and FGF23, 
which stands for fibroblast, fibroblast growth factor. Uh, this is a potentially concerning, again, as I stated, for cardiovascular risk. So acidosis plays a role in there when it affects the musculoskeletal system. We're all worried about mortality, and we know our chronic kidney disease patients tend to have a higher mortality, especially when, when they progress. But if you look at our earlier stage patients, our moderate and severe stage three and four, male gender, African-American race, and diabetes were associated with low serum bicarbonate. Not a huge surprise there, especially when it comes to diabetes. When we adjust for relevant covariates, low serum bicarbonate levels were associated with a 23% higher risk factor or higher risk assessment for all-cause mortality. That's an important factor. The relationship between serum bicarbonate and all-cause mortality did differ based on age, level of kidney function, I think we would expect that, and presence or absence of diabetes and malignancy. And those last two could be whether or not it's related to proteinuria or the effects of malignancy itself. Uh, a little unclear from this study uh, that came out in 2011. A time-dependent analysis uh, suggests a decline in serum bicarbonate level was also significantly increased with all-cause mortality. So the bottom line is mortality does appear to go up uh, when you develop acidosis. So what's the problem with acidosis? Unfortunately, along with the effects outlined above, it's usually underdiagnosed and therefore undertreated. When you look at a cohort study uh, reported just uh, a few months ago at the American Society of Nephrology meetings uh, in Washington, a very large cohort of over 86,000 patients were studied who had both CKD and chronic metabolic acidosis. 21% of them had a diagnostic code for metabolic acidosis. That's a low percentage. And we all know the differences now between coding. If it's not coded, it wasn't done. So maybe uh, we're just not coding it correctly. Older age and higher GFR were associated with a lower likelihood of diagnosis. A nephrology visit, health insurance, and having comorbid conditions were associated with a greater likelihood of diagnosis. Only 15% of the patients in this study were treated with oral alkali therapy, again, the mainstay of therapy. And only 36% of these patients remained on that therapy at the two-year mark. So poorly penetrated into the treatment and poorly tolerated with a third of the patients, slightly more, not remaining on therapy. The discontinuation rates for oral alkali therapy were very high, especially in the first 180 days of use. What are the benefits and the risks of treating? So let's do the benefits first on the left-hand side. Uh, I do think we have enough evidence now where we can reduce risk for chronic kidney disease progression. Not going to halt it, but anything we can do to slow it down is great. We increase skeletal muscle mass and muscle strength, which is often debilitating in these patients. We reduce bone buffering and preserve bone and mineral metabolism, a cardiovascular risk factor. And we can also reduce serum potassium with these if the patient's hyperkalemic, which they often do become as kidney disease advances. So what are the risks of treatment? And again, we're talking about alkali therapy here. Well, alkali therapy is sodium and bicarbonate, which dissociates in the stomach, and you can get fluid retention from the extra sodium, uh, increased blood pressure, pulmonary and peripheral edema, uh, again, because these are sodium-based formulations. You can also develop hypokalemia if the bicarbonaturia that you get from increasing bicarbonate use is excessive. It'll drag more potassium out. You can get hyperkalemia with potassium-based formulations such as potassium citrate or nutritional therapies, which have been also used as an adjunct for treating metabolic acidosis, 
and we'll talk about that shortly. You can get vascular calcifications and kidney calcifications, i.e. stones, and calcium phosphate nephrolithiasis in particular. So when we look at alkali therapy, uh, there are several things, and I'll talk first on the sources that we see on the right-hand side. Nutritional alkali therapy with fruit and vegetable diet is probably warranted in most patients who have CKD. Uh, caveat there would be you have to watch potassium levels. But initiating alkali therapy with a single low bicarbonate value may be a little premature. So you need to make a decision or have a decision tree where to initiate pharmacological uh, treatment based on the following. Number one, severity of the metabolic acidosis. Number two, the patient's blood pressure and ability to withstand or take the sodium content or the sodium load that you're giving. And also in line with that, number three, the volume status. Uh, recall that hyperkalemia along with metabolic acidosis is probably the most important reason to initiate pharmacological treatment because this can help lower that and allow us to continue RAS agents. Many times if we have a patient who's on a RAS agent and they develop hyperkalemia, our first thing is to stop those RAS agents. Well, we know that that also then cuts down on their ability to preserve kidney function, so we want to maintain those as long as possible. So now let's uh, concentrate on the left side. If the average uh, bicarbonate is between 19 and 21 on two consecutive measures, I would generally start sodium bicarbonate therapy starting low at about uh, 15 milliequivalents of bicarb per day or 650 milligrams twice a day. If the bicarbonate is lower than that at 18, I start with a little bit higher dose. We then can titrate that up or down till we get a target total CO2 of 24 to 26. And if the total CO2 then falls, that may be something more indicated. That's where I may want to look at uh, this as part of a respiratory situation by doing a blood gas. And then we can titrate up usually to a maximum of about 1,950 milligrams three times daily. So when we look at dietary strategies, and I tried to put this into line with some of the foods that you would look at, which are acid-producing and those that are base-producing. So if you look towards the middle portion of the, uh, of the chart there, you can see lentils, wine, coffee, fruits and most vegetables, spinach and raisins add more to the base. And I think that that's a good thing because what it does is it cuts down the potential renal acid load the more uh, base-producing uh, foods that you take in. But again, not a good strategy for a lot of people, especially if they have comorbid conditions. Uh, they may have to be a little bit more uh, strict with their diets. So I think it's so important on CKD progression. I want to talk to you about some of the studies that looked at alkali and CKD progression. These are basically three studies that we looked at. Uh, there were long-duration uh, trials. They were over two months in uh, 248 uh, patients. And alkali therapy in these patients was associated with significant net improvement of glomerular filtration rate of about 3.2 milliliters per minute. That may not sound like enough, but it was statistically significant. In the short-term studies that we looked at, which looked at alkali therapy for only seven days in a small number of patients, the same effect was not observed. Similarly, alkali therapy resulted in a significant net decrease of the serum creatinine of 0 .7, 0 point, I'm sorry, 0 0.07 milligrams per deciliter. When we look at two long-term studies over 81 patients, alkali therapy was associated with significant net decrease in the urea nitrogen, or BUN, of almost 11 milligrams per deciliter. 
And again, another analysis of these two long-term of two long-term studies, including almost 300 patients, there was no demonstrable effect of alkali therapy on 24-hour urine protein excretion. It would be wonderful if it was because one of my goals in my patients is to get their protein excretion down as much as possible to also aid in decreasing uh, renal damage. Finally, analysis of two long-term studies of 175 patients revealed that those treated with alkali experienced a 79% risk reduction in the incidence of dialysis requirement as compared to the control group. Take that with a little grain of salt. That was a small study, but boy, that does make a lot of sense. And the better we can do with dialysis uh, delay, the better off we'll be for our patients. Kidney disease improving global outcomes uh, has come up with a lot of different things uh, through the years for us. These studies have been updated, and as of 2019, uh, I want to show you this, which looks at uh, uh, what we would do for CKD and serum bicarbonate less than 22. So we would treat those with oral bicarbonate uh, supplementation given to maintain a serum bicarbonate. And what you could see in the purple uh, box and the blue is the control, the purple is the active patients, their renal event rate um, went down. Uh, and it, that seemed to last in the end-stage renal disease patients and across into the other uh, estimates of glomerular filtration rate. And if you look at the relative risk reduction on the side panel, um, or total renal events percentage, uh, again, with active and controls, uh, we see an improvement when using bicarbonate. So again, the evidence is there that improving the acidemia or acidosis will help greatly. So what are our pharmacological options? And I don't want to uh, spend a lot of time on this uh, chart, but uh, basically we're left with alkylating agents. And uh, the first five that you see there are all forms of alkali or all forms of bicarbonate or citrate that are bound with either sodium or potassium and are given in uh, certain increments. I'm going to focus more on the sodium bicarbonate. That's the one we use a lot more of. If I do have a patient with kidney stones, uh, who has low citrate in their urine, I may use potassium citrate or citric acid, but I'm just going to focus on that top bar for now. And again, our dose is usually about 325 to 650 up to uh, several times a day. It, it gives you approximately four milliequivalents of bicarbonate. It's inexpensive. Uh, many of us who have, uh, remember our parents, uh, they had this in their closet called Brioski or something else to settle their indigestion, um, which was basically sodium bicarbonate. It neutralizes the acid, it's inexpensive, there's no potassium in this, but there's a lot of G, uh, GI issues related to carbon dioxide production. Again, when the sodium bicarbonate uh, hits the acid in the stomach, it dissociates to sodium, water, and carbon dioxide. So uh, that's how we uh, deal with some of those issues. Um, we also have to worry a little bit about our potassium-based ones because there's some aluminum absorption and aluminum is, is not friendly to chronic kidney disease patients because of CNS effects. Also, our liver disease uh, patients can't really convert the citrate into bicarbonate, so that adds a, a new wrinkle to that. So that's what we've had. We've had these alkalinizing agents coupled with a salt, and we do have newer agents, including vaviramir, which I'll talk about in a little bit, which actually binds hydrochloric acid in the GI lumen, allowing us to impart a better... Um, absorption of bicarbonate, but I'll speak about that shortly. So we want to look at considerations. So the guidelines, again, recommend that we want to maintain the serum bicarbonate over 22. 
however, the ideal target or the sweet spot, as I'll call it later, may be 24 to 26. So if you look at the mean achieved total bicarbonate concentration in beneficial effects, it was approximately 24 milliequivalents. And there have been observational studies that have found that have found an association between improved kidney outcomes and patient survival when you reach to 26 or 28. But when we look at our CRIC study, the Chronic Renal Insufficiency Cohort Study, there was also some downsides to getting your bicarbonate higher than 26. There was a higher incidence of heart failure, and that may also be related to the sodium content. And also, if you look at that CRIC study, values that exceeded 30 milliequivalents per liter, which are actually approaching in the alkaline state, are associated with a higher risk for death. So again, if you see on my chart on the right, there's a potential sweet spot between 24 and 26 where we want to stay. Below that sweet spot, we have an increased risk of CKD progression, bone demineralization, skeletal muscle catabolism, and increased risk of death. On the right side of that sweet spot, we start to see increased risk for heart failure, vascular calcification, and increased risk of death. So swing for the sweet spot. That's my message. Adverse effects, the primary concern is uh, fluid retention, again, sodium-based, elevation of blood pressure, and peripheral and pulmonary edema. Alkali therapy may also cause hypokalemia if you have excessive, excessive bicarbonaturia. So the more alkali you take in, you may excrete more bicarbonate in the urine, and as a result, you're going to drag more potassium out. Potassium-based formulations, however, can cause hyperkalemia in CKD. So they can be useful if the patient is already hypokalemic, and I also use them uh, because of the citrate formation in people with uh, chronic nephrolithiasis. But uh, the bottom line here, and this is uh, dating back to DeBrito's uh, work in 2009, increasing urine pH may predispose you to these calcium phosphate stones, although it's not been really reported in clinical trials of alkali therapy in CKD. Um, so again, if I have the nephrolithiasis, I may use a citrate-based. So other agents. So we're seeing three important factors as I've talked in this webinar today. We know, number one, correction of metabolic acidosis to what I call the sweet spot may help slow progression of CKD as well as the other factors. Number two, despite this knowledge, only a small percentage of our patients are treated with current alkali therapy. So that's an area of opportunity. Number three, of those that are treated, the discontinuation rate and the adverse effects that we see, primarily because of the sodium balance, are very high. There was also significant GI issues that we all know are problematic in patients uh, related to the production of carbon dioxide. So what else do we have out there? Is there anything else that can help us get the benefits and maybe uh, loosen up some of the adverse effects that we see with alkali? And that's where vivirumir comes in. Vivirumir is an investigational agent that's currently under review by the U.S. Food and Drug. It's a first-in-class hydrochloric acid binder uh, for the treatment of metabolic acidosis. So this is really a new approach to this. It's not just supplementing bicarbonate. So how does it work? It's a non-absorbed polymer, which is composed of these low-swelling spherical beads that selectively bind and remove hydrochloric acid right from the, gastrointest right from the gastrointestinal tract and excretes it through the fecal material. So when you remove hydrochloric acid from the gastrointestinal tract, it's then excreted and more specific then, but similar to removing nasogastric gastric acid, as you would see in suctioning or vomiting. Both of these areas would increase sodium bicarbonate. 
So we remember back again to our acid base, what happens when we suction out the hydrochloric acid in our nasogastric patients. So there was a study on Vivirimir, which was published in The Lancet in 2019, which looked at 471 patients assessed for eligibility. 254 were excluded. I won't go into the exclusion criteria right now, but there were 217 ultimately randomized to this trial. So 124 were assigned Vivirimir, and 124 received allocated intervention, 93 assigned to placebo, and 93% or 93 patients received allocated intervention. So out of the uh, assigned group for Vivirimir, five discontinued the study early, one adverse event, two participant withdrawals, and two others. And in the placebo group, four discontinued uh, early, three to adverse events, and one to withdrawal. So in total, 119 completed the study, 124 were analyzed for safety, 123 analyzed for efficacy, and in the placebo side, 89 completed study, but 93 associated for efficacy and safety. The demographics in this study were well matched. The exclusion criteria, which I list here, but I'm not going to go into very much, uh, did uh, look at particularly things I want to point out, history of COPD, heart failure with NH, uh, NYHA class 4 symptoms, uh, patients with any known cancer, severe gastrointestinal disorders, and liver function tests uh, at the upper limit of normal. The rest of them we can uh, look at at your, at your convenience and see what uh, led to these exclusions. So what were the results? This is a very busy slide, but let's go through it a little bit, starting on the right-hand panel. Uh, serum bicarbonate curves for vivirimir and placebo groups separated over time, starting at the first week of treatment. And that you could see below in the graph, where the um, where you can uh, see the uh, serum bicarbonate change in the purple, separating after about that first week and maintaining across the 12-week uh, period of this study. And it was approximately 4.5 millimoles, uh, or at 1.7 millimoles per liter that we saw this bicarbonate rise. So it appears to be effective based on this 12-week study. And if you look at the endpoints, I'm now in the uh, left side of the uh, chart in the first panel, the composite endpoint uh, for both um, showed 71 or 59% of the patients uh, met the composite primary endpoint as opposed to only 22 of the placebo patients. And again, if you look on the bottom, the last one, the component with serum bicarbonate in the normal range, they used 22 to 29, a little bit above my sweet spot, but 50% um, achieved that in Vivirimir compared to 17% in the placebo group. So we could see where, where placebo uh, was better and Vivirimir was better on this uh, chart as well. And again, if you look at the patients down below, you could see a difference in the change of serum bicarbonate. So three uh, graphical ways uh, to look at how this is uh, approaching. So bottom line is it does appear to be an effective agent, at least on alleviating and getting your serum bicarbonate up into the range that we wanted for chronic kidney disease. So what about quality of life? We're always concerned about quality of life, especially in our CKD patients. Unfortunately, the, many of them have comorbid conditions. Uh, they're, uh, they're, they don't work as often. Many times there's a large amount of mental health issues and depression there. So quality of life should be foremost in your mind about all your patients, but don't forget about in our chronic kidney disease patients either. So if you look at the end of the week 12 of the treatment here, physical function as, made, uh, as 
measured by KDQOLs or kidney disease quality of life uh, physical function domains, and we do this in our dialysis patients, the KDQOLs, um, it increased significantly in the Vivirimir group compared to placebo. And that's uh, changed. Um, that's what we show on the left-hand panel where you see worsened physical function to the left and improved physical function to the right. The purple Vivirimir did better. Then if you look at the bottom panel, physical function is measured by the repeat stair chair. I'm sorry, physical function as measured by the repeat chair stand test, numerically improved again within the Vivirimir group. So if you look to the bottom chart, improved chair stand time to the left, worsened chair stand time to the right, placebo uh, more towards the right, Vivirimir more towards the left. So quality of life also seems to be positively impacted uh, when we look at this particular medication. Of course, we have to talk about adverse effects. All drugs have some adverse effects. So when we look at that, any adverse effects or all comers, if you will, there were about 54% in the Vivirimir group, 46% in the placebo. If you look at gastrointestinal, certainly Vivirimir does give more gastrointestinal. And remember, it's, it works in the gastrointestinal tract, <clears throat> whereas uh, placebo was 9%. Diarrhea also, 9% uh, versus 3%. Metabolism and nutrition effects, slightly higher in the Vivirimir group. Hyperkalemia, slightly higher in that group as well. And that may also be to some effects of, um, of the uh, difficulty with excreting bicarbonate or type 4 renal tubular acidosis, many different things. When it comes to CNS disorders and headaches in particular, they were about the same. So small percentages, although all uh, adverse effects, fairly high in the Vivirimir group but when you look at the gastrointestinal, slightly higher than placebo. And as always, you know you have to weigh the adverse effects versus your uh, improvements or the proposed outcomes. So we have a couple minutes left before we get to a question and answer session. Um, and what I would do is uh, come with some of these conclusions and then a little bit of a summary slide. So in non-dialysis dependent patients with chronic kidney disease and chronic metabolic acidosis, who have had 12 weeks of treatment with Vivirimir, significantly increased their serum bicarbonate with 50% of their patients achieving normalization, according to this study, 22 to 29, uh, on the bicarbonate level. 56% achieved an increase of 4 millimoles per liter or more, and 59% achieved a composite primary endpoint where the increase of 4 millimoles per liter or more from the baseline serum bicarbonate at uh, start to the baseline bicarbonate at week 12, or serum bicarbonate in the normal range at week 12. When we looked at the effect of Vivirimir on sodium bicarbonate, we found that it was both rapid and sustained over this 12-week period, and that's also important. So this really tells us that we may have another agent that we can use against metabolic acidosis that may alleviate some of these things. Uh, that we see with alkali therapy that we discussed earlier. You know, the story still has to be told as to what the cardiovascular effects may be uh, on this. You know, uh, heart failure patients were excluded, and uh, I'm waiting uh, for more uh, results on this. But I do think this has a potential to become a new, uh, um, a new tool for us to treat metabolic acidosis. So let's summarize on the next slide uh, some of the things we talked about today. I know we talked about a lot, but here's what I want you to take home. In response to acid retention, the kidney increases ammonia production per functioning nephron to facilitate acid excretion. 
The more kidney disease you have, the less functioning nephrons, the less acid excretion. The increased ammonia concentration promotes inflammation and the activation of complement, which we touched on, and that also contributes to kidney fibrosis. So again, this is a progressive and active inflammatory process with the kidney. You can reduce the burden of metabolic acidosis, and when we do, we help in the progression of chronic kidney disease. That's been shown. Alkali therapy, as we've talked about, has been the mainstay of treatment, but we know it's underutilized and often discontinued due to adverse effects. Vivirimir may present an option for management of metabolic acidosis with acid removal versus neutralization, which is what bicarbonate does. So we move to an area of removal versus neutralization. Uh, more studies to come on this to find out how it's going to play in our toolbox uh, for metabolic acidosis and chronic kidney disease. But I certainly hope you gain some more information uh, based on this uh, summary today. So again, thank you for uh, attending this conference. Um, I hope there was some valuable information in what's been a lifelong uh, search for uh, answers from people in the nephrology community. Many times uh, we get frightened by metabolic acidosis, and there's clear evidence, as we provided, that metabolic acidosis is not only a consequence of chronic kidney disease, but plays a role in the progression. And that's the one of the mainstays of treatment is to try to slow the progression of chronic kidney disease. And that's whether it's a, a genetic disease like polycystic kidney disease, diabetes, hypertension, or any glomerular disease. Slowing the progression, if we can't have a direct effect, is really the way to go. We need to cut back on the amount of patients that are going on to end-stage renal disease therapy. So we'll start with uh, some of our questions. And uh, first question comes from our, uh, from our audience is, how does dialysis affect metabolic acidosis? And uh, dialysis is, is interesting because, first of all, we've now termed that patient to be at, at end-stage renal disease. And as a result of that, what innate mechanisms they may have had um, to prevent, remember I talked about in the, in the presentation that you have to generate the metabolic acidosis and then maintain it. Many times, even though patients maintain some residual renal function when they're on dialysis, Oftentimes, they lose that innate ability. So they walk around in a chronic state of metabolic acidosis. Dialysis is dialyzed against a fairly alkaline bath, usually with a bicarbonate concentration of 35 to 36. So that usually uh, does help in their metabolic acidosis. But if you recall the physiology of hemodialysis, you have these very large peaks and valleys. So when a patient presents for their dialysis treatment, they have their treatment over four hours, and everything, BUN, all that goes down, bicarbonate goes up, potassium goes down, and then right after that, they slowly start to accumulate again. So that 48 hours later, when they present for their next treatment, they're at their peak again. This is one of the reasons that myself, as well as the government, have uh, elected to try to push uh, through some of the um, things regarding home types of dialysis especially peritoneum, they give you less of that peak and valley and may also um, uh, help us to, to understand that a little bit more. So dialysis, they do uh, pertain to metabolic acidosis. Um, it does help it, but it's a peak and valley thing, and home therapies may often um, be uh, indicated. Okay, so I'm going to take our next question. 
and it's actually regarding what other studies have been done regarding nutritional effects used to counter metabolic acidosis. And that's very interesting because nutrition uh, is, is something that we haven't paid a lot of attention to in the past, and certainly for our own health, we need to pay attention to it. And for patients who have a problem with acid loading, um, there's a big push to use uh, dietary modifications, as we talked about. Prior studies regarding dialysis—I'm sorry, dietary acid loading—did show increased risk of chronic kidney disease. So, in another large study that I've looked at, um, over 12,000 patients um, that were looked at a greater dietary acid load, they did better when you lowered that acid load. So, we do know that uh, that, that uh, diet that's improving in an alkalinization as opposed to an acid-ash diet uh, does tend to uh, help. And particularly if you look at stage four chronic kidney disease, one year of dietary acid reduction using a fruit and vegetable diet versus sodium bicarbonate improved metabolic acidosis and reduced kidney injury, but did not produce hyperkalemia. Now that still has to be at least on, on your mind as we go through this because uh, you want to avoid hyperkalemia, which is a whole other problem in chronic kidney disease. So fruits that were provided were predominantly apples, apricots, oranges, uh, pears, strawberries, and vegetables were more in the carrot, cauliflower, uh, lettuce, potatoes, and zucchini. So um, those are some of the things that you would certainly want to look at. And I think that that's very important as we move forward. And I think that also answered one of our questions that came up, can we use diet to control the condition better? You absolutely can. You just have to be a little bit more um, prudent when it comes to looking at their acid, acid uh, base status and their hyperkalemia. The other thing you have to keep in mind when it comes to diet is many of our patients are on a protein-restricted diet. Many of our patients are on a carbohydrate-restricted diet. And certainly many of our patients are on a lipid-reducing diet. So oftentimes we make the joke that they can eat cardboard, uh, which would be about the same thing. But I, I really believe in nutritionists uh, for this. When we have advancing chronic kidney disease patients, I use a multi-point or multi-touch education for them, and there are many of them out there um, that you can refer to that has diet as one of the big mainstays for this. So not only will the patient learn a little bit more about their chronic kidney disease, It'll, they'll learn a little bit more about prepping them for eventual dialysis if that's needed. And in fact, if you use these multi-touch programs for education, more patients will do home therapies, which I think is better. But the fact that they include nutrition there, I think is very helpful. I have a special nutritionist that I'm affiliated with that I use for my chronic kidney disease patients. Uh, we work in sync with each other, and the patients also do very well. Okay, uh, next one uh, is uh, a question from the audience. Is there a contraindication of Viviramir? Is it okay to use with proton pump inhibitors or H2 receptor antagonists? Um, at this point, yes, but there's going to be some timing associated with that. Just like some of our other agents that we've spoken about in the past, um, there will be some separation that will be needed to use these agents as opposed to uh, taking them in conjunction with other agents. Um, there's going to be more to that uh, following uh, in the future, so I would keep uh, keep abreast of that so that we know if we can uh, go ahead and, and look at that. So um, another question from the audience, is it dialyzable? 
that hasn't been studied yet because remember these patients were, if they were at end-stage renal disease, were not included in the studies. So uh, we haven't looked at the dialyzability of this type of medication. So I'm not going to uh, spend too much time on that. That's something that will come out a little bit uh, more in the future. Okay, so what, uh, what are the cardiac effects of metabolic acidosis in chronic kidney disease patients? And that's always uh, been one of our problems. So oftentimes what we have to be very careful of is that these patients who develop metabolic acidosis and we start them on sodium bicarbonate, they're at higher risk for developing two things. They can develop a metabolic acid, uh, I'm sorry, a metabolic alkalosis, which if you recall my quote-unquote sweet spot, if you exceed the sweet spot, you can actually develop a metabolic alkalosis. And what a metabolic alkalosis would then do is um, it actually has its own set of problems affiliated with uh, heart disease. So what you may actually see is you may start to develop hypokalemia because you're actually driving potassium out and uh, because of the metabolic alkalosis, you can drive potassium into the cells so that you become hypokalemic. And that can predispose you to multiple issues associated with cardiac toxicities. So, you know, potassium has always been one of my, um, one of my ions that I pay particularly close attention to because we, such, we have such a narrow gap uh, with, with which we can uh, function. Too low is bad and too high is bad as well. So alkalosis from bicarbonate administration can cause hypokalemia. It can also cause hypochloremia and metabolic alkalosis. So when I talk to my residents and students, I will always say if you're woken up in the middle of the night and you are asked the question by a nurse or another practitioner, I have a patient with metabolic alkalosis, your next question should be what's the urinary flora because that often helps us to try to understand these are hypo or hypochloremic uh, acidosis. So once hypochloremia occurs, though, it can actually worsen the alkalosis uh, by a specific mechanism. Uh, sodium bi or bicarbonate uh, secreting cells in the distal collecting ducts will express a uh, chemical or a protein, and then this will transport bicarbonate into the luminal fluid in exchange for chloride. So you're actually going to absorb more bicarbonate, put out more chloride, and then you worsen that as well. So that's an important factor that we need to look for uh, also. And also just remember that you have the, the difficult problem of the congestive heart failure due to the sodium load. Most of us uh, have very difficult time keeping our patients out of congestive heart failure. We all know it's a cause for increased morbidity. It's certainly a cause for increased um, hospitalizations, and uh, thus we don't do as well for our patients. If we have them on uh, if we have them on uh, bicarbonate, that can also become more problematic. And that works us into one other question: How does the addition of diuretics alleviate some of the adverse effects of sodium bicarbonate administration? Again, kind of a two-edged sword here. We all know that we have to diurese our congestive heart failure patients. We all know that many of our congestive heart failure patients are in chronic kidney disease. So I have described, and I teach my residents this, a, a cycle or a vicious cycle, if you will. Uh, the first thing that may happen is you'll start to see an increase, an increase in BUN and creatinine when you're over-diuresing people. That leads to a decrease in the diuretics, which leads to an increase in the congestive heart failure symptoms, which leads to a decrease in the diuretics, 
And what you do is you have this vicious circle. So when the B1 and creatinine go high, we start to decrease diuretics. Heart failure exacerbates, we increase the diuretics. When you have someone on sodium bicarbonate who also has that extra sodium load, you're going to see this vicious cycle a lot more. So as a result, uh, we have to be very careful with that. We also know that there's a term out there called contraction alkalosis, which patients who do have volume depletion will get. And along the same lines that I just described for people who develop the metabolic alkalosis associated with this, that can also continue to have um, an effect. So we have to diurese these people. We know that. Uh, we have the chronic kidney disease people where we want to manage this. So that's where I think Viviramir can become a much more um, potent adjunct for us because it may take away that effect. Very good. I think I have time for about two more questions. I will uh, pull these out. Let me look here. So are we uh, – that one we answered already. And are there any other adverse effects with uh, Viviramir that we want to look at? So um, there are, and we have to be a little bit careful when we're looking at these, but by and large, uh, the Vermeer in the study that I uh, talked about um, is pretty safe. And importantly, I want you to refocus on one of the last slides that I showed, the quality of life slide. That's very important for us. And you look at worse physical function versus improving physical function. There was no doubt that there was an increase in these KDQOLs, which are the quality of life indicators. So I think that that does give us a very strong uh, component, uh, proponent for using this. We did see a lot of adverse effects, though, with Viviramir. Uh, compared to placebo, it was, it was slightly higher. If you recall the slide, it was 67 in the, uh, in the treatment group and 43 or 46% versus 54% for the placebo group. And most of those were circled around uh, gastrointestinal, which is similar to what we see in bicarbonate, but the discontinuation factor for Viviramir is less. So the GI side effects do seem to be a little bit um, less. Certainly you want to watch those, uh, those issues with hyperkalemia and alkalosis. Remember, we're going to try to hit for that sweet spot so that we don't over-correct uh, the metabolic, alkalosis, uh, metabolic acidosis. And you see, even the nephrologist gets confused sometimes. Um, we don't want to over-correct those so that we're running into problems with alkalosis. So you oftentimes you'll trade uh, you'll trade one with the other. Okay, another study, another uh, question is, what's the effect here on muscle contraction? That's a very good question because we uh, tried to show a little bit in our, uh, in our talk what we were looking for as far as um, muscle contractions. So one of the things that can happen is that uh, there can be a lot of issues with skeletal muscle uh, uh, issues with weakness when you're looking at uh, metabolic acidosis. So we have to be very careful on that uh, because we do start to see some issues. Again, it's all really basically tied in to the whole metabolic component that we are uh, discussing here. So that is something that we should, um, we should keep an eye on. Uh, that's very important because oftentimes our patients um, will not be fully aware of their issues. I'll give you an example on that. Oftentimes we have our patients will come to us uh, with issues regarding muscle cramps. And in particular, I'm going to focus on the statins. We all know that a lot of our statins, um, you know, are, are used 
they're very good medications. They've been shown to have multiple uh, positive effects on, on people, and yet patients are so relative uh, to take them because of the potential for muscle contractions or muscle issues or statin myalgia, if you will. And a lot of this has to do with shifting of intracellular ions, potassium, and you will see that both with metabolic acidosis and a little bit with the medications that we use uh, to, to decrease it. So you have to be very careful with uh, using that. Okay, should Vivirmir be taken with food? That's also a good question. And uh, I think you have to be careful because, again, dietary-wise, you want to stay away from the highly alkaline foods uh, when you take this. But I think it's a good idea to take this medication uh, with food. That may cut down on some of the GI effects. There's still a little study out there as to whether that decreases the efficacy or availability of the drug. But uh, many of these things, and I often tell my patients also to take the bicarbonate if we use it with some food. So that, in other words, if putting something in the stomach may reduce the hydrochloric acid load, and that would uh, then potentially reduce, in sodium bicarbonate's case, the dissociation into carbon dioxide, but in Vivirimir may also take away some of those GI effects. And I still think that when, uh, because of the mechanism of action, uh, it can still be absorbed when you take it with food. So that's, uh, that's a very good question as well. Let me see if I have time for one more. I think I do. And let me pull through here. Okay. Is there a difference uh, in the treatment of metabolic acidosis depending on the presence of a high anion gap? Very good question. Uh, I mentioned it in, uh, in my talk that a high anion gap metabolic acidosis, the traditional treatment has always been to treat the underlying cause. Those are usually more acute type of situations. That's when you're seeing a patient with lactic acidosis, diabetic ketoacidosis, um, certainly poisonings uh, through our careers. I've seen multiple ethylene glycol poisonings, salicylate poisonings, things that will give you the high anion gap acidosis. Remember, in stable chronic kidney disease, where versus acute kidney injury, where you can get a high anion gap acidosis. Those are mostly non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. So yes, there's a difference. Um, primarily, these medications I think are more for use in our standard chronic patients who tend to have a non-anion gap acidosis. So high anion gap acidosis is a totally different animal because we're going to focus our treatment on the underlying cause. Uh, the sepsis patient who comes in with uh, lactic acidosis, diabetic ketoacidosis patient who I just saw this morning, um, you know, we're going to be looking at those uh, type of things as well. So I don't think we're going to see a big role for this type of medicine there. Um, just kind of conjunction in that, the minute or two we have left, um, you know, there's always a controversy on whether you use bicarbonate in these patients as well. Because as for all the things we talked about, bicarbonate infusions in the, in the hospitalized or critically ill patients can cause a problem as well because of many different reasons. So a lot of times people with DKA will come in and we find that if you treat their DKA, um, then that'll help alleviate the acidosis fairly quickly. Yes, there are some caveats, particularly if a patient has a, has a pH that's very low. I certainly will still use bicarbonate. I generally don't push it. I generally use it in a drip, uh, mixing D5W. Remember, sodium bicarbonate has sodium and bicarbonate. So if you add more sodium to normal saline, you're making it hypertonic. 
I still think there's a role in that for some people. It's really just a temporizing role because, again, the treatment for the in-house acute high anion gap acidosis is to treat the underlying cause. Wow, some very great questions out there today. I hope uh, everybody enjoyed the lecture. Um, I hope everybody's staying safe in these crazy times, and I was glad to spend some time with you today. Um, make sure you do your paperwork to fill out uh, for your CME credit, and uh, it was truly really a pleasure to give this talk to you today. Have a good day.